Isaiah 56. I had the intention of getting to chapter 57 tonight. I don't know that that's going to happen. I suspect that perhaps it's not. Before we do anything else, though, I wanted to say thanks before we dive in. I know that Sunday was largely review for those of you who are regular denizens of the Wednesday night study. So thanks for, thanks for the grace on Sunday. I really felt led of the Lord to fill in the blanks for some of the Sunday folks. And, and, a, and you know, a couple of, of you grabbed me and tugged me on the sleeve and said, you know, the blessing of, of Sunday was I didn't realize that I knew that much. I, 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 I you know, I, I knew most of it and it was good to be encouraged. And so if, if, if that was you, then, then praise God for that. I hope that, that one way or another that you were blessed, if only by knowing that, uh, that others were. Isaiah 56, we left off looking at the millennial kingdom, and specifically looking at Gentiles in the millennial kingdom. We left off with God saying, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, Israel and the nations, Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are welcome in the kingdom. They're welcome to worship in the temple in the millennial kingdom. They can even, if you remember, we peeked ahead to chapter 66, Gentiles are even priests in the millennial kingdom. Now the question that I got, and I got it from several people, and I got it even before I finished the study. My phone was going buzz, buzz, buzz because I forgot to silence it. The verses speaking of access to the temple for the Gentiles, also spoke of access to the temple for the eunuch. Verse 4, I've given him as a witness, that's the wrong, sorry, that's the wrong chapter. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant. Even to them I will give in my house, and within my walls, a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the question, actually it was, it was a two-part question, or maybe it was just two questions. What's the present-day application of that for the church dealing with the eunuchs of our time, dealing with people who are grappling with gender confusion, dealing with people who are pursuing gender reassignment. What's the application for that in our time? And what's the future of the transsexual in God's kingdom? And, and like I said, I got the question from a couple people before I was finished with the study. I got it from four or five people since then. It, and, and it's an interesting question for me just personally, because 25 years ago or so, I was feeling called to ministry and I was starting to talk to people about that. I was starting to say that out loud and I was starting to talk to pastors. One of the pastors that I talked to was Pastor Chick up in Calvary St. Paul, um, where my mom was living at the time. And, and he was doing what any good pastor does when someone said, hey, I think I'm called to pastoral ministry. He was trying to talk me out of it. Because, because if he could talk me out of it, 
Well, then that would be evidence that I wasn't really called. If words can discourage someone from pursuing God's calling on their life, then it's not God's calling on their life. If words can discourage someone from ministry, the reality will crush them like a bug. It's my philosophy of premarital counseling as well, to be honest. If I can talk a couple out of getting married, I've saved a divorce. And I really believe that. Anyway, so I'm saying, hey, Chick, I think I'm called to ministry. And Chick is trying to discourage me from that in love. And he says to me, so here's the thing, Patrick. Transsexual person came into my office today and said, hey, I just got saved. What should I do? Should I go forward or should I go backward? Because they were halfway through gender reassignment. They'd had some surgery. They'd had a lot of hormones. And the question is, the question that Chick put to me is, so should that person go forward or go backward? And I said, well, I think that's easy. God made them male and female. He said, oh, really? What do you do with 1 Corinthians 7.17? As God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called, and, and so forth. I know that that's not a particularly good argument. But the point that Chick was making to me is, hey, unless you're willing to grapple with these questions, you don't want to be a pastor. And I walked out and I said, I don't think I want to be a pastor. <laughs> that was 25 years ago, though. If you, I mean, think about it. 25 years ago. Think about the questions that he's gotten since then. Because he's up in Minneapolis-St. Paul, one of the most liberal metropolitan areas in the country arguably second or third most, most liberal major metropolitan areas. In any case, let's go back to where we were, verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even, then, even to them I'll give in my house within my walls a place and a name. So what do we do with that? Well, let's, let's take the two questions one at a time. Yeah, I think that that would include the transsexual individual that gets saved during the tribulation. Do they get to serve? I think they do. What about the transsexual individual who gets saved before the tribulation and is raptured with the church? Or the transsexual individual who dies during the tribulation is one of the tribulation saints. I think they get to worship in the temple. Because my, my, my question in response to the question for all three of those scenarios is why wouldn't they? To say otherwise, doesn't that of necessity say that God treats some sin differently than other sin? And that there's some sin that's not able to be fully forgiven that, that relegates someone to second-class sainthood? I don't see a basis for that in Scripture. The, the, the related question that I got was, okay, so the transsexual individual in eternity, do they have their reassigned gender or do they have their original gender? See, these are questions that we didn't think about decades ago. My first impulse is to say, well, original, because to say otherwise would be to say that God makes mistakes and I don't think that he does. But then I pause. Jesus bears his scars in eternity, doesn't he? 
We know that he does. He showed Thomas that he did. He showed Thomas the, the, the wounds in his hands and his feet. I've said before, I think the reason the disciples didn't recognize him on the road to Emmaus was that his face was so, so scarred from his beard being pulled out. Jesus bears his scars in eternity Do the rest of us. In eternity, will we have appendix scars and open-heart surgery scars and knee surgery scars and the scar on my face from the fight I got in when I was five? <laughs> Do we have those scars in eternity? Do we maybe bear them for the sake of highlighting the beauty that was beneath them the whole time? Do we bear them for demonstrating how little appearances matter? See, the more I think about it, the more I don't think that I know. I don't think I know what I think. Is it possible that Jesus' scars are an exception? Are they the exception that, that, that proves the rule? Maybe. I think about people that I've done funerals for, memorial services for, that, that were in a wheelchair, either shortly before their death or for, for a lot of their life. And, and, and like a lot of people, I'm, I'm inclined to say, oh, well, they're dancing in heaven now. They're dancing with Jesus. I've said that. And I really want to believe that that's true. I, I, I have a hard time comprehending an eternity where people bear the disabilities that, that they, they, they dealt with in this life. On the other hand, I don't know that I know. So I end up the place that I end up any time that I know that I realize I don't know something. I go back to what I do know. What do I know? What do we know? We know at the very end of the Bible, in Genesis 21, we read that God will wipe away every tear from their eye. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he said, he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. What do we do with that? I think that we take that and we say, whatever the answer is, it isn't going to matter. I think our earthly appearance, our worldly, our temporal, our mortal appearance, whatever, whatever it ends up being in eternity, what we were, how we look, the scars that we bear, whether we carry them into eternity or not, they simply won't matter anymore. The other aspect of the question, so what are the implications for today? Because I'm the guy who always says the things that will be true in the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, physically, the things that will be true when Jesus is physically ruling and reigning should be true in the kingdom spiritually today as Jesus rules and reigns in our hearts. So, so what does that have to say about the fact that we see eunuchs serving in the kingdom? I think it means don't run away from the LGBTQ community. We talk about gay pride, or they talk about gay pride. I think the real gay pride in this world is our pride about the gay community. Because, because it activates pride in us, doesn't it? For most of us, we look at that and we say, well, we can't relate I don't understand. I've never experienced that kind of temptation. I can't, I can't connect with gender confusion. It doesn't map to anything in my mind. 
Therefore, it must be worse. It must be lower, more depraved, more to be despised. That's what our pride says. That's what our pride looks for. Someone we can be better than. Except, who did Jesus say his mission was to? The least and the last and the lost. And the lower someone is in, in our, our carnal estimation and our prideful assessment, arguably is the more Jesus says, yeah, you're the one I'm going to love. Many pastors I know look at the LGBTQ community and wonder, is that where the next revival is coming from? Because, because you can look at the community, and, and I'm speaking of it as, as if it's this, this, I'm trying not to say homogeneous, but homogeneous <laughs> community. Okay, they're people. And they're different. And, 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 and to say, yeah, well, all, they're all the same. That's like saying all church people are the same. That's, that's like saying, okay, yeah, you know, Calvary Chapel, Plainsboro Baptist, you're all the same. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I hope not. But, but, but to wonder, just as the last big great awakening came, came substantially out of the hippies, does the next great awakening come out of the, the LGBTQ community? There's a lot of similarities, if you think about it. Rejected by the conservative establishment. Hated. I'll use that word, hated, by many churches. Doing what the hippies were doing in the 60s and early 70s. Looking for love. Trying to find a little bit of peace and joy in this world. Were they looking for love in all the wrong places? You bet. They were looking for it in sex and in drugs and in nature. And what about today? Looking for joy in same gender intimacy, in, in gender reassignment surgery. But the thing that we have to understand, by and large, this isn't evil that we're talking about, this is longing. This is longing. And when we see people who sin differently than we do, they're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy, every bit as much as we were. And I think that it is tragic, I've said this before, I think that it's sin that the LGBTQ community is the least evangelized demographic in the Western world. Why? Because deep down, many of us don't want to spend eternity with transsexuals with homosexuals. What did we just read in Isaiah 56? God doesn't care what someone was doing to cope with the world when they got saved. He cares that they got saved. I'm going to say that again. God doesn't care what someone was doing to cope with the world when they got saved. He cares that they got saved. And let Jesus become their coping mechanism, their sufficiency, their rest, and their strength. So that's my best swing at answering the questions that, that came across the transom while I was teaching 
last week. If you still have questions about that, hit me up. I'm sure there's still more to discuss. There's probably things that I'm missing. And I don't think that it's a conversation that we need to finish. I, I, I hope and pray that it's a conversation that, that we need to keep going. I hope that the Holy Spirit working in the world and working in the church and working through the church will give us reason to keep the conversation going. All of which I think is a decent introduction to the remainder of chapter 56. I don't think we're going to get to 57, but that's okay. God will forgive that. Chapter 56, we've been talking about the kingdom, the treatment of Gentiles and eunuchs in the kingdom. And we've been saying, God's been saying, uh, sorry, I keep going to the wrong verse. I'm going to bring them to my holy mountain, verse 7, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Get to verse 9. This is where we left off last week. And there's a change of pace, change of direction. There's a change of substance, there's a change of tone. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they're ignorant, they're dumb dogs, they cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yeah, they're greedy dogs, which never have enough. And they're shepherds who cannot understand. They all look their own way, everyone for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, one says, I'll bring wine. We'll fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today and much more abundant. So we go from <coughs> eunuchs, Gentiles, Jews, all of us making our way to Jerusalem, making the millennial temple a house of prayer for all nations. There's abundant joy and all of a sudden, we're not talking about the kingdom anymore. What are we talking about? Who are the beasts in verse 9? All you beasts of the field come to devour. That doesn't sound like millennial kingdom language. That doesn't sound like the lion laying down with the lamb. That doesn't sound like the kids go play with the cobras. Well, if we compare scripture with scripture, beasts points us to the Gentile nations but with a really different tone, right? It's, it's not kumbaya anymore. Beast points us to the Gentile nations. Where do you get that, Patrick? Among other places, Daniel 7, verses 2 and 3, Daniel's visions. It's the beasts that come and war against the flock, which is Israel. So what are we reading in verse 9? We're reading God inviting the Gentile nations to attack and devour and feast on Israel. Why? Because, verse 10, Israel's shepherds aren't doing their job. They're dumb. Dumb in the sense of voiceless. Dumb in the sense of, of, of not able to speak. They don't bark. They don't warn. Anna and I just adopted a dog like that. We've each heard her bark once in the month, five weeks that we've had her. She's not a watchdog. Come burglarize her house. It's fine. She'll roll over your rubber belly. She'll show you where the, the, the jewelry is. Rather than, rather than a watchdog, rather than acting as watchdogs, Israel's shepherds are sheep. Rather than looking out for others, they're looking out for themselves. They're greedy. They're never satisfied. They're focused on, on distracting themselves, drinking, 
They're inwardly facing. And they justify it ignorantly by saying, you know what, we'll worry about what's out there tomorrow. Because tomorrow's going to be like yesterday is going to be like today. Why worry? It can wait. So what leaders is God talking about here? Isaiah is giving God voice, but, but what leaders is the Holy Spirit speaking of? Well, Israel's leaders. But when? In what time period? Because we're clearly not in the kingdom anymore. We've switched, we've switched uh, uh, time frames. It's not the kingdom, because none of that sounds like the kingdom. It's not after the return of Christ. I don't think it's after the abomination of desolation. Because, yeah, the, the, the nations will be coming to devour, but the shepherds are going to be very much on their game at that point. They're going to be very focused on survival. They're going to be very focused on the threat from, from outside. So it's not the kingdom. It's not the second half of the tribulation. Could it be Israel's leaders in the first half of the tribulation? Or maybe before in the years leading up to the tribulation? That's possible. Because if they were doing their jobs, we talked about this Sunday, if they were doing their jobs, perhaps Israel would not have been so hasty to rush into the treaty brokered by Antichrist. If you think back to Sunday, we looked at Isaiah 28. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem because you've said we've made a covenant with death and with Sheol we're in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us for we've made lies our refuge and under falsehood we've hidden ourselves. That sounds like kind of a similar indictment. Shepherds sleeping on the job. Shepherds taking the easy way out. Shepherds not believing that that something could happen to threaten them. That's a possible explanation. Other commentators will say, well, no, 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 I think it's Israel in Isaiah's day. This, this describes Israel's leaders after the Assyrian invasion has been turned back, but before the Babylonian invasion has happened. I think that works too. Because we know, we know from our study in Isaiah, if nothing else, that Israel's leaders don't heed the lessons that God went, fell all over himself to teach them through the, Babylon, or through the Assyrian invasion. So is that a possible explanation? Yeah, I think it is. Especially if you look at other prophetic books. Zephaniah 3, one of my favorite books of the Bible, you know that. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, to the oppressing city. She's not obeyed his voice. She's not received correction. She's not trusted in the Lord. She's not drawn near her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They've done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He'll do no unrighteousness. And, 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 and so on. And the near-term fulfillment of that is the condition of Israel's leadership prior to the Babylonian invasion. But even the way that I said that, I'm tipping my hand, right? Like you need me to tip my hand because you know me. 
why should we say that it's either or when we can say that it's both? There's a reason that the kingdom of Antichrist is referred to, Revelation and elsewhere, as Babylon. The Lord is calling our attention to that parallel. And so I think that, that perhaps that there, there's a near-term and a long-term fulfillment of what we're reading in Isaiah 56. I think that those verses characterize Israel's leadership before the tribulation and before the Babylonian, uh, the, the series of Babylonian attacks. But don't get too comfortable because I think there's another possibility too. Flip over to Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is the chapter where Jesus pronounces woe, seven woes, over the scribes and the Pharisees. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he says, woe, verse 13, scribes and Pharisees, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayers. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe, verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Woe to you, verse 23, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you're like whitewashed tombs. Woe to you, verse 28, you build the tombs of prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we've lived in the days of our fathers, we not, would not have been partakers with them. And so on and so forth, leading up to verse 37, a verse that we've read how many times in the past months, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, your house is left to you desolate. You'll see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The moment where Jesus pronounces judgment over Jerusalem for rejecting their Messiah. Patrick, are you saying that that's the right interpretation? Is that what the Holy Spirit has in view speaking through Isaiah at the end of chapter 56? I don't, I don't, Yes and no. I wonder if the reason the prophecy is not clearly grounded in a period of time, the end of Isaiah 56, I, I wonder if the reason that it's difficult to say, well, it's speaking of then and it's speaking of that, is it perhaps because this is qualities of poor shepherds? Shepherds committing ministerial malpractice, pastoral malpractice across all times? Is this what it looks like every time leaders fail to lead? I think you could run with that. I think, I've, I think if I carried this passage into a pastor's conference, I think I could find a sermon in those verses. Application, not interpretation, but 
Isaiah was just talking about Gentiles, so he's begging us to make application. And I think I could preach a message to pastors. Hey, shepherds can't afford to be blind or ignorant or unaware of the world. Shepherds have to be watchmen, ready to sound the alarm, ready to call out lies and false teaching. Shepherds know the condition of their flock. They like to serve more than they like to sleep. They're about others more than self. They're more sacrificial than territorial. They know that the times are growing short, growing dark, that tomorrow isn't promised, that tomorrow isn't necessarily going to be like today, and we can't mess around with sex or screens or substances. I think that'd preach. I think that'd preach. If this were a Sunday... If I carried that verse into a Sunday morning, I could, I could preach a very similar message to fathers. That'd be a good Father's Day message. Hey, men, you're the shepherds of your house. Your home, your family is the flock that God has given you charge over. And I think you could take those exact same points and, and preach a message to dads. I think you could take those same points and, and talk about leaders in the workplace, leaders of small groups. Leaders in any context of life. I think you could take it and you could turn it around and speak to the flock rather than to the shepherd. And say, hey, this is what shepherds are trying to do. This is who they're trying not to be. Don't ask them to be these things. I was helping Caleb with his message earlier, teaching the, uh, teaching the youth this evening. He's finishing up James. In the last two verses of James chapter 5, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James saying, hey, don't despise the one who comes to you speaking truth and correcting error. I think you could join that idea up with the end of chapter 56 and say, hey, recognize the gravity of this role the seriousness, and the temptation to phone it in. See how seriously God expects shepherds to take their role and how God holds them accountable. And hey, are you, are you helping and supporting your shepherds or are you resisting and resenting them? Man, I don't preach like that very often because I, I, battle, I battle the appearance that it's self-serving. But it's not if you think about it. It's the health of the body that, that God is calling out. If leaders don't do these things, what's the result? If leaders don't lead, then God brings in agencies from the outside to enforce the correction much more painfully. And so, yeah, I think, I think that would preach. Hey, if you don't see those things, if, if you do see those things in your pastors and elders, appreciate it. If you don't see those things, exhort them because you don't want what comes next. But it isn't Sunday morning. And it's not a pastor's conference. It's Wednesday night and our time is, is coming to a close. So I'll close just by asking, what is God saying to you? I can, I, I can think about sermons that I'd preach from the text, but what's your application? As you, as you read God talk about watching and warning being on alert, staying awake, staying informed. As you read what God says about leaders who aren't serving, who aren't sharing, 
who aren't recognizing that time is short. You know, we spend our time either killing time or redeeming time. There's no neutral. I've said before, every, you know, the universe is binary. There's God and there's not God. And we're either serving God or we're serving something not God. There's no third option. So, what's your application this evening? How is God calling you to, to take and heed those verses? Because if you think about it, we're all called to be shepherds. Not just pastors, not just elders, not just fathers, not just small group leaders. We're all called to speak to the world and to correct error in the world and to guide people into the safety of the fold from the danger of the world before God turns judgment loose. Lord, I pray that we would each find guidance, wisdom, encouragement. Perhaps rebuke. But hopefully exhortation in these words. Israel stands as an example again and again and again. The history of Israel, you hold up as an example to Israel, but you also hold it up as an example to the church. Oh, Lord, may we learn. May we make different mistakes. And as we cling to you, may we make few mistakes. Hearing from you, walking in your ways. Staying close to your heart, abiding in your will, obeying your commandments. Lead us, Father, in the way we should go.